Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park. And today we're talking about Freddy Krueger. Freddy Krueger is one of the most iconic 80s slasher villains, starring in everything from his own musical album to having an 1-800 number. The reason why he has had such a long impact on pop culture is largely due to today's movie. And Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, made Freddy Krueger. Wes Craven turned down any involvement with the sequel, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but when Nightmare on Elm Street 3 came around, the heads of New Line once again asked him if he wanted to be involved. He decided that he would work with the studio and write them up a script. Wes contacted Heather Langenkamp and asked if she would return for the third movie. She said yes, and Wes wrote a script with Bruce Wagner that involved the return of Nancy Thompson. The only issue was that Wes was in deep in pre-production for his latest movie, Deadly Friend, and had to basically relay his ideas over the phone to Wagner. Together, they submitted their script to New Line, who liked elements of the script, but thought the film lacked any real rules for Freddy. They brought on Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont, who did a retooled version of the script. Russell met with New Line to pitch his version of the blob, and left with an offer to direct the next Nightmare movie. His version of the blob would be made in 1988, after Dream Warriors became a hit. The new version of the script is very different from Wes Craven's original draft, however, it's not as different as Executive would have you believe. The original script has multiple exchanges and ideas that are extracted directly for the final script. They were originally not intending to credit Wagner or Craven with the script, However, Craven brought the studio to arbitration with the Writers Guild, and they got their credits. The original script is a lot meaner than the final film, however, the general structure and the characters are still there. There are reports by Robert England that he wrote a version of Nightmare 3 himself, although that script has never surfaced. Chuck Russell wanted to take the Nightmare franchise into the realm of fantasy, and that's exactly what he achieved. Still, Russell was a very new director, and that led to a lot of inexperiences with dealing with actors, at least according to Rachel Talalay in the documentary Never Sleep Again. Robert England reported having a good relationship with Russell, but he seems to be in the minority. Patricia Arquette was only 19 when she signed on for the role as Kristen Parker. On her first night of filming, she had difficulty remembering her lines and had to use cue cards due to the fact that she was extremely exhausted. You'd never notice in the final picture, as the sequel where she recants Freddy's famous call in tears and fear is absolutely amazing without a hint of cue cards or stilted reading. Robert England described Chuck Russell as the first person to arrive at set and the last one to leave. He was involved with every step of the process, including the effects work. This was an expensive and expansive script. He managed to control the budget by getting together an amazing effects team. In one particularly memorable cost-cutting measure, the barking pig in the final film is a real pig that was puppeteered by someone sticking their hands in a dead pig. It was cooked and then left out to be disgusting. It apparently smelt awful. For the sequence featuring the giant Freddy snake, Kevin Yeager got a chance to really show off his talents. Yeager was put in charge of all the effect sequences for Dream Warriors. His initial design and coloring of the Freddy snake was deemed to be too phallic, and they had to completely repaint the prop before putting it into use on 
film. It was Jaeger's first giant puppet prop, and there were four different versions. One to rise up and grab Patricia, one to eat Patricia, one to puke Patricia, and one was a giant animatronic that was made to sneer, which you see in the final film. Issues with the prop made the team choose to suit the sequence of Patricia getting eaten in reverse so that it would look more convincing. Mark Schostrom, who was in charge of the effects for Nightmare 2, only designed an unused prop for the picture. He designed the original look for the girl Kristen finds in her opening dream. His design was not a burnt skeleton, it was a horrified, shriveled corpse, which was deemed, again, to look too disturbing to be put on film. The only real connection to Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in the final picture is a brief snapshot of the movie Alone in the Dark, which was an early film starring Donald Pleasance and was made by Nightmare 2's director, Jack Shoulder. You can see it briefly on TV when Jennifer gets her head slammed into the television by Freddy. Welcome to Prime Time, Bitch is an ad lib by England and is Kruger's most famous line. The stop-motion effects were handled by Doug Beswick and his company. Beswick had worked on Star Wars prior to Dream Warriors and was given the task of the Freddy skeleton, which was a homage to Ray Harryhausen. When Taryn was killed, the makeup took seven hours to apply, and they accidentally applied it to the wrong arm the first time they did it, so they had to redo the effect all over again. Her original death involved her head exploding, and they could not figure out the effects. Her death was not the only effect scenes with alterations. Joy was originally to be captured by the topless nurse and have her head turn into Freddy's head. The effect was deemed too bizarre when finished, and they decided to drop it for the final film. When Joey was strapped to the bed, they built the room sideways to better capture the effect. He passed out. The wheelchair for Will was gigantic and had a loud motor which helped to drive it down the hallway. For Will's death, the retractable blades on Freddy's hands were kind of malfunctioning, so they decided to put a 2x4 underneath his robes and just have England full out stab it. The chest of the Screaming Souls was an actual prop they built to go over England's real chest and they puppeted it on camera. The sets were extremely complex and at times dangerous. Production designer CJ Strawn says they were going for a more fantasical look. The final boiler room sequence took place across from the LA County Jail in an old warehouse. The fumes could get extremely noxious as the heat from the lights would kick up the chemicals from the paint. The fumes nearly knocked out Heather and Patricia, according to England in his autobiography. Things were really down to the wire, which created a very tense set. Heather Langenkamp says it is one of the tensest sets she ever worked on. The most difficult set piece to master was the Hall of Mirrors. That turned out to be incredibly complex to accomplish. The actors were given some freedom to embody their roles. Jennifer Rubin came up with Taryn's iconic hairdo, and Dick Cavett was allowed to choose who he would interview in his short appearance. He chose Zaza Gabor as it was someone he said he would never want to interview on his actual show. Other characters like Kincaid were almost exactly as written. Ken Sagos, prior to his audition, was extremely frustrated, and when they told him he could say anything to try and get the role, he just said, fuck you. It got him the part. 
Even though Dawkin and their hit song is the most remembered of the bunch, it's worth noting that Angelo Badalamenti's music is really remarkable as well. Angelo is most well known for his iconic theme for David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Dawkin got a platinum record for their hit song, aptly titled Dream Warriors. The music video was the first music video ever put on VHS, and it was one of the first music videos to actually incorporate footage from the film itself in their video. That is the behind the scenes, but let's talk about the film itself and bring on my amazing guest. Today we are joined by Laura. Hello, Laura. Hello. Thank you for saying I'm amazing. Hey, I only speak the truth, uh, as long as none of the references uh, that I used to get all that research in the early part is a lie. So hopefully that's all true, and I can say I only speak the truth. I feel like everything you said sounded right to me. <laughs> so would you like to kind of explain who you are, and, and what does the film Dream Master mean to you? Well, I am... Um... An I would say an on and off movie aficionado, but uh, mainly in the the horror genre. I've been watching horror movies since I was a wee little lass. I spent uh, a few years working in the old style video rental uh, industry uh, back in the day, and uh, always getting the the obscure horror films. But uh, I actually started my love of horror movies with the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, the first one I ever watched was Freddy's Dead. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, so maybe for a lot of people, maybe not the best one to start with, but it holds a special place in my heart. But this is actually, so the, the second Nightmare on Elm Street movie I've ever, I ever watched uh, as a youngin was uh, Dream Warriors. My parents would let me rent these movies for sleepovers uh, way too young. Uh, I guess they thought because maybe they were old that they wouldn't be bad. But uh, as we all know and love, they're, you know, they have their child inappropriate moments i would say probably the fourth or fifth nightmare movie i watched was actually the first one uh but i've been watching horror movies since i was quite young i love them uh i'm now on a new podcast with my my husband mike uh called burnt popcorn where we talk about uh successful movies of yore and if they still hold up uh and i just I really love horror films, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. Amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm very excited to, to have you here. It's, it sounds like you had a very interesting relationship as far as, like, the chronology of the franchise. <laughs> when when I was younger, uh, we would I would have sleepovers with the girls my age on my street, which I was very lucky growing up in the middle of nowhere. Was, there were actually two other girls, and my parents would drive us into town in a small town, go to the only video rental store and let us pick out spooky movies for the night and then not pay attention to what we were watching. So we would just grab the ones with the coolest covers that looked scary and stay up all night watching scary movies at like 10 and 11 years old. I mean, hey, that's uh, that sounds pretty great. That sounds pretty great. Where, where would you put this in terms of like the franchise like overall? Uh, I'm just assuming you've seen them all. Oh, yeah. Uh I would definitely put this one as like number two overall. Uh, it It's just a really, really good movie. And I feel like it's very, very close behind number one, uh, but then far and above all the other ones. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. It's It really is the movie that kind of put Freddy Krueger into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, reading, I, I read a big portion of uh, Robert England's biography 
and it's it's fascinating because there's basically before Freddy Krueger and then after Freddy Krueger, where he had just done all of his work on the TV series V, which had just came out, and the first season and the first little miniseries was like a big hit. So he was like, oh, I guess I'm going to be like living in the sci-fi world for a while and go to like sci-fi conventions, and this is going to be my thing. And then all of a sudden, nope. Freddy just completely took over his life and just kind of completely changed the way that his career would look. And uh, it's hard to imagine where, I guess, horror would be in a, in a, in a huge regard without Freddy Krueger because he's really kind of the first horror villain that is as much a personality as mm-hmm. he is meant to scare. Uh, and I think that's kind of like what puts him above... Uh, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees in terms of just like iconography because uh, like honestly you can kind of just like switch the outfits of Michael and Jason and the two characters are not that different fundamentally whereas it's really hard to you know to become or to mimic uh, you know Freddy I think the closest is probably Chucky uh, I think uh, but I mean, he never really reached the same levels of popularity that that Freddie did. So, did you ever find these movies scary? Uh, you know what? I feel like as a kid, when I was way too young for them, I uh, definitely had like that that fun scared you get watching scary movies with a friend. They were never the kind of movies that gave me nightmares. Uh, but they definitely were enough to give me like a fright the first time seeing them. But like watching them now, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like even when I watched them for the first time, if I was watching these at 10 and 11 years old for the first time, that was still 10 years after they came out. They were, you know, old then and now they're like classics now. So it's hard to really say like was it because comparatively there wasn't anything like that was what was scary or is it just because I was young and I didn't have a ton of uh, background in scares before then like before before those movies what was you know the creepy stuff I was watching and I was always into the creepier stuff like I grew up when I was really little on Scooby-Doo like anything that was creepy I was just drawn to as a child yeah no that that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense it's really um an engrossing subgenre. Freddy scared me really early on, and that was before I'd ever seen any of the movies. So I always have a weird relationship with the franchise as far as it being scary, because the idea scared me. The movie itself never really did. So I was afraid of the series before I ever watched the movies. And then you watch the movies and you're like, oh, these are just kind of fun. Like, they're not really as uh, hardcore as as the other ones. Uh, that, like, I, you know, Michael Myers scares me still. Like, I can still f- watch the original Halloween and go, oh my goodness, that's scary. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, even the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the, the concept is scary, but like Freddy himself does not outright terrify me. And especially by this point, like this is full-on popcorn Freddy. And I think... The reason why he has stayed in pop culture is probably because of this movie, I would say. I would agree. And you know what? You you actually bring me back to a memory of my even earlier childhood. Is So I grew up in the middle of nowhere. My, my house growing up like was surrounded by farmland and 
like brush and just so beside my house someone had just abandoned probably before I was born these old cisterns uh if any like listeners know what like the cement big cisterns and that as a six and seven year old we would climb into which I'm sure would be incredibly unsafe and I remember my neighbor who was a year older than me who had older cousins was like don't go in there a Freddy Krueger is in there and like I was just like I had no idea at the time what a Freddy Krueger was but I knew it was bad because he was in the cistern which was dangerous and dark and full of spiders so he had to be full of spiders and he had to be scary and you're right then when I watched like Freddy's Dead which is possibly the least scary of all of them I was like oh this is not someone to be scared of and even then this this one Dream Warriors I would peg this one like it is still a slasher movie but it it definitely is deeply rooted in sci-fi yeah that's a good point that's a good point there's a lot of sci-fi and there's a lot of fantasy going it honestly I always thought that this kind of brought Freddy to kind of being like Dungeons and Dragons rules mm-hmm. uh, especially I mean you got Will in, in the movie and he is a huge D&D nerd Um, And I guess that does kind of transfer to one of the things that I think is really worth talking about with uh, with this movie and with the Nightmare franchise in general. But I think this is probably the best example of it. The kids are so likable in these movies. And unlike other slasher franchises, I find that I always have a, a deep empathy towards these kids. And it's not one of those things where you just want to see them die. I think in that scene where Will is is playing, uh, not D&D, I think it's literally called the Wizard Master. I know he says yeah. it's the Wizard Master, but I believe it's called the Wizard Master. A little red D&D regardless. But I, I just love how Joey and Taryn are still playing with him. And like, even though, you know, you wouldn't normally equate these characters as like hanging out and doing things, uh, you know, they, they have this sweetness to each other where they're willing to kind of entertain each other, even if it isn't necessarily their cup of tea. And you get a real good sense of, of heart between all these kids, I think. I I completely agree. All the kids are really likable. And there is, despite it being, like you said, this slasher movie rooted in fantasy and sci-fi. Like, they're literally going into one person's dreams and fighting, like, a demon ghost dream monster, really, of whatever Freddy really is at this point. But one of the things that, like, I've noticed is, like, for example, Kristen's mom is so typical of, like, a latchkey mom in the 80s. And that's relatable and I would say that's exceptionally relatable to like the audience watching it at the time in theaters like you know you being a 16 17 year old you know boy or girl uh or like literally anyone and it's just like your mom is just completely absent she's doing her you know 80s power woman uh your dad is non-existent I mean that was just the reality for so many people and the movie does a really good job of just incorporating what was the reality for most teenagers at the time and I feel like at least the first few movies maybe not two I don't know two's a little two's its own thing but they really are despite the fantastical elements they they do capture and I feel like a lot of Wes Craven movies are like this they capture the reality of the time quite well yeah, that's a that is a great point. And and like you said, you you say Wes Craven and you are correct. Having read that original script, um, I can say that a lot of the elements that you're talking about come directly from Craven's initial 
pitch and his initial initial script. It's a very it's a very different story, but all the core elements are there, especially in regards to like the parents. Um, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot. There's even more stuff between Nancy and her dad in the the Craven version that didn't mm-hmm. quite make it here. But the 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 core sentimentality of it all and the earnestness uh, is still there. Although interestingly enough, the nun and the the bastard son of a thousand maniacs thing um, d- is not in his original version, um, which is one of the more interesting elements. Uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely get into that, but that that core heart uh, and these uh, genuine empathy for these kids is mm-hmm. is present right from the get go in his version. Yeah. So like, and you're you're right. Like it, you feel empathy for these kids, and so despite it being not particularly scary especially now and not uh like it is there's a lot of the typical freddy i don't want to say goofiness because that underplays it but that comedic aspect to it but you still every single one of the kids like their deaths are they they're still even that i've watched this movie probably a dozen times they're they're still a gut punch because you like all the kids Right. And he's and it's one of those things where especially in this movie, right, because it's like they are growing power from their deepest fantasies and who they are in the dream world is supposed to be their idealized version of self. And I, I've always found, uh, you know, Taryn's death is incredibly depressing, like incredibly heartbreaking mm. when she's got like the needles and like the needle holes that are like become mouths and are like going, and it's like, ah. But I always find Will's death, like, really depressing, where he just gets, like, so nonchalantly stabbed, and then, like, Freddy just says, sorry, kid, I don't believe in fairy tales, and then just, like, stabs him. And it's just like, damn, like, this is, this kid finally became, like, all he dreamed about, all he would, like, play in all these games, and then his dreams just get turned on their head, and he dies still. And it's really, it's really tragic, and, you know... In a lot of ways, I guess Freddy kind of just represents the dis- destruction of your dreams to get a little heady. Um, but he sure. turns he really turns it on uh, all of these kids, which is just really sad. And you know what? Like I, when you speak of like the the sadness of the death, you know, Philip's death, I found like not like the effects are so good and so interesting of the like the puppeteering, but like his death is just mean. Yeah, it's like, really, it's really mean. It's, it's really mean. mean, and like I feel like a lot of the deaths after this movie aren't so much mean as they are goofy, and this one they they all have like a personal connection to the character to a deeper degree, and like it it almost feels like almost like karmic comeuppance, but. These kids didn't do anything to deserve it. Right. Yeah, it's true. It's like it's it's society punishing them for being losers almost, right? Yeah, like being and like outside of the norm. Vices and mental illness and, you know, a lot of the times and still to this day, but I feel like the 80s were like the tail end of when it was, well, my kid is being a handful. 
I'm just going to put them in an insane asylum. Yeah, yeah. That, like, everyone, when they're talking about, uh, you know, their introductions to uh, where they got the ideas from, uh, Wes Craven, like, brings this up exactly. Like, he, he, they're in the documentary, I think it's Never Sleep Again. Like, when he's talking, they, they brought up an old, a whole bunch of, like, archival ads that are basically, like, old print ads that are like, hey, your kid's being too much? Send them to this asylum. Like, it'll be great. And all these, like, old commercials and all these things that were basically just like oh your kids are problems just like throw them away and uh in funnily enough in uh, of all places uh in the blob scream factory blu-ray uh which is also directed by chuck russell he talks about how he actually spent time in some of these care homes and volunteered in order to kind of better understand uh, what the kids were going through and better emphasize with them for the final film, which is, I thought was really interesting. Oh, that's amazing. And that like, you can, you can see that come through because there is a deep empathy with these kids. Like the way the movie is written and filmed, it's not again, like the deaths are, yes, they're cruel and personal, but you feel bad for the kids. Not like, haha, he got hit with a frying pan in the face. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And yes, that that exact thing happens in Fred uh, in Night uh, and uh, Freddy's dead, right? He gets yeah, well, that's that's the Johnny Depp cameo. But like, oh, what do you yes. think like our you know '90s staple of Breck and Meyer? If it's a teen film, like he dies because he's obsessed with video games, and it's just silly and funny and. Like, Freddy controls him as a video game and kills him that way. And, like, that's, it's funny and it's, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but there's no empathy for the character like there is for these ones. It's just like, ha, ah, that's a that's a fun death. But I feel like with a lot of sequels, the longer they go on, the more you're going to get yeah. those sorts of deaths. Yeah, exactly. It's a little hard to kind of uh, judge franchises because they so often are kind of dictated by what's going on at the time, right? Mm -hmm. By by the time of Freddy's Dead, that's like mid, that's early '90s, I think, and you know the the whole realm had just completely shifted in terms of what was funny and 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 where horror was at the time because early 90s is not the greatest time for horror in general so no and yet still it's Wes Craven it comes around full circle who really revitalized it in 96 so I mean it's definitely not like you know it was just he he had such a big hand in the change in the 80s and then again in the 90s which is which is crazy huge yeah, it's kind of, it's very crazy because like even when you look back at the start of his career, he basically really got in on like rape revenge films with Last House on the Left, which is incredibly influential. Hills Have Eyes in the 70s, like he helped really build some of the nastiness of 70s horror in a lot of ways. And then he comes to the 80s and just completely reinvents the slasher icon with Freddy Krueger. And then he completely kind of does a 180 and completely is become self-aware and works with Kevin Williamson to do scream and just constantly reinventing himself and reinventing his style, which in a way that I I'm always kind of baffled by and surprised. And, you know, he's, he's one of those voices that, uh, that I really miss in, in film today. Yeah. Like absolutely creative genius. And especially in such a genre that really doesn't. And I feel like, it comes in waves when the respect comes to the genre, but like it is such a under-respected genre where like you look at someone like Wes Craven who 
people who are you know the cinephiles might not and i don't mean people like you and i who are your average shows i mean like the the film critics who have been film critics since the 70s and who judge like the academy awards and etc like they just don't have that same love of the genre despite it being ever evolving and ever changing and these creative voices who just completely like go all out and just make these huge strides in storytelling yeah it is it is very surprising i know i'm pretty sure it was dream warriors that um roger ebert just went off on and you know at the movies was really kind of attacking horror movies during this time and apparently their review of of one of the nightmare movies i believe it was dream warriors was particularly nasty and uh it really kind of uh you know kind of bummed people out especially when you work so hard on on a on a film especially when you work so hard on the effects for the film because it was not an easy shoot it was not easy effects work to just basically you know turn on any tv and you just got this critic just telling you you're absolute trash and you know it's gotta it's gotta kind of impact your creative drive and they still put out consistently great material which kind of surprises me yeah and like it's it is so creative in storytelling like who who's gonna come up with like this freddy Krueger character and then to not only come up with this really interesting character but then continue to evolve the character in a way that is still interesting he's not like a, a one note you know character right right and and they bring back characters right like I, you know heather langenkamp coming back and not just being one-off cameo to die like she does die at the end of the movie spoiler alert yeah spoiler spoiler for a 30 year old movie <laughs> spoiler uh but oh god, 35 oh, oh god oh god so old. oh so old uh but it's a it's a film where it doesn't just bring her back to just immediately kill her off it makes her a very important character it mm -hmm. makes her journey matter and it's it's very respectful from from that regard that uh is kind of unique because i i always think of returning final girls um like in friday the 13th part two they just have their final girl come back from part one just to immediately die in the first moments on screen and they very rarely bring somebody back with a purpose and you know wes craven really kept going back to heather langenkamp because he saw her worth as an actress and really liked working with her so much so that he even brought her back for new nightmare years and years later so he clearly had a good working relationship with her and it was very nice to see to see her send off and actually be felt like you know uh, nancy thompson is a legacy she's not just a, a one-off character and she really matters which i thought was very cool for sure and like that is one of the big and not and i i was about to say that's one of the biggest complaints i have with it but no, no no this is the biggest complaint everyone has with it so i'm not unique or thoughtful here but like when you mentioned like with friday the 13th i would say probably the worst culprit of that is uh halloween resurrection killing off laurie strode in the oh. first 10 minutes like oh goodness gracious yeah what? apparently they th that one was contractual though like yeah. she was like kill me you must kill me kill me yeah. now kill and now me. she's back again but no and now like, she's back I'm really hoping because like they they have officially announced Scream Five and Nev Campbell's back, and if they kill her in the first ten minutes as being like the opening like stab kill or whatever, I'm just gonna lose it because like no, no, yeah, yeah, that's Forbidden. I 
I, you know, we're talking all about Craven and, and sequels. Uh, I I don't know how I feel about a scream without Wes Craven. Um, it's weird. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be weird. And you know, Kevin Williamson isn't even writing it, as far as I know. So this is completely new hands for the Scream film franchise. And uh, I'll be interested to see what happens in that regard. Well, if the world's back to normal, I'd be there. I'll be there opening weekend. But I mean, uh, with trepidation. Yes, exactly, exactly. Same way, same way here. What do you think about the expansion of Freddy's origin? Because this kind of gets played up and really kind of delved into in, in future films. And I was curious what, what your opinion is of, you know, of his mother, Amanda Kruger, appearing and, and all of all of the more religious symbolism that kind of comes with his new origins. Well, because that's the thing. In the 80s, it's not as, like, problematic as it is today. So I, as a, like, when I first watched this movie... And like hearing like and especially like in Freddy's Dead, like in all the like you said, the later movies that get into it. So I went in to the first movie already having this knowledge that like Freddy's the su- bastard son of a thousand or a hundred maniacs, whatever. And like, you know, his mom was raped by a crazy person. So therefore he was a monster and da 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 da. And I always found that like, oh, that's so like fascinating and interesting and et cetera, et cetera. And now it's like with more information and it not being 1987 anymore, uh, realizing just how absolutely problematic uh, the idea of like a child born of rape and just because they're whichever father it was out of that whole kit and caboodle uh it was is um it is highly problematic because just because that is a child's like genetic makeup and just because that is how they were conceived does not hold any bearing over who they will be as a person themselves that said it is a very interesting take on an origin yeah it's unique it's unique and i think it's one of it's one of those things where um just saying like just the the line and delivering it as as a thing just like sounds really good on paper like you, yeah. it's like a really menacing like the bastard son of a hundred maniacs or, or whatever the number of maniacs we just constantly keep changing the number of maniacs maybe it's 10 maniacs i'm pretty Who sure knows? it's 100 i'm pretty sure I, it's 100 you're right you're right i've probably added a, a whole bunch more but anyways <laughs> <laughs> but uh it, it's it sounds really good on paper and it doesn't like you don't really kind of get the full grasp of what it means in uh in this film it's not until the sequels where they really kind of get grimy and nasty and kind Mm -hmm. of really show you a lot that it gets a little bit more troubling and more problematic uh it, it it's not good but it's not good but it it's not so bad in this one that it completely ruins the movie by any stretch especially given the other stages where it has empathy that they normally don't for characters in horror movies so it's 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 worth noting and worth talking about um but i think it's real bad in like dream child because like in dream child they get really detailed oh yeah that's uh that one is 
possibly my least favorite of the whole bunch. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think my least favorite is still the remake, but... Oh, well, I wasn't counting the remake. Yeah, I don't think anyone really wants to ever count the remake because yeah, we no, no, don't no. think it happens. No, no. Yeah, like that, that's, that doesn't count at all. <laughs> but uh, no, and like, and that's the thing, like watching this movie and like I, we've, for this new podcast I'm launching, we've, we've looked at some older films and one of the things that I'm noticing more and more is just how much better the practical effects hold up in this movie so um it just like i was saying with philip's death like the practical effects of his you know puppeteer work uh from his like ligaments and such and just so much of this this movie is just so well done and the only part of it that really kind of made me go oh weird effects are the the almost could you could you call it computer effects when they're going into the mirrors because everything done practical still looks great for even a movie of the 80s it's very weird uh it was really i was really trying to get a grasp in any special features exactly how they accomplished that mirror effect and all i really got was oh man it was crazy difficult and i was like how did you do it how did you do it and you know meanwhile they're all telling the same five stories i've heard before and i just keep watching these new documentaries being like all right this time you have to tell me about the mirror sequence i want to know how was this done was this early cg and like i never never heard i don't think it was i think it was probably some type of optical effect um, I know it was difficult to do, and it does look very odd. The one effect for me, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about all the great effects uh, as we go on, but the one that always kind of weirds me out because I can never really tell how it's done is when they have, like, the, the Newton's cradle and, like, it, at, when they first find out they're dreaming and all of the balls kind of, like, start flying around, like the metal Newton's cradle thingies, yeah. whatever they're called. And I'm always like, what is this effect? Like, it just looks weird to me because I can't tell because it almost looks like early CG. But again, I, I think they probably would have mentioned it somewhere if that had been early CG. It was just a very weird effect that kind of unnerved me a little bit. Yeah, I agree. And like, I want to, speaking of being unnerved, because you're right, it kind of gave me that weird feeling that the same feeling I get when there is the claymation and stop motion animation of like an actual character interacting right. with another character. So not so much like the stop motion of like the with Kristen's hand in the faucet when that craps her. That not quite to the same extent, but like when Freddy's skeleton is is moving around and fighting, I get this weird it's hard to describe, but it's like guttural feeling of like something's not right, something's not right, something's not right. And the the balls in that scene gave me that f same feeling that it's just like uh, uh, something is uh, that's not how reality works. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah, it, it and it's effective, right? Because you're watching a horror movie. So yeah. like it's good that we have have these have these feelings. Uh, it is just strange how I've seen this movie a bajillion times, right? Like. It's uh, sometimes when I watch movies, especially for this podcast, like I'll be watching it with a new eye and be like, oh, wow, I never noticed that scene before. Whereas when I watched this scene, I was like, oh, yeah, I legitimately know every single frame of this film pretty much because of how many times I've seen it. Uh, so there wasn't as many surprises as there are other times. 
but it it really was uh, remarkable how it just could unnerve me still. And it's always mm-hmm. those those effect sequences that you're talking about, like the uh, claymation effect with Freddy's skeleton always looks a little bit off and really kind of makes the whole world feel a little askew, and it just kind of throws you off a little bit, which is which is very interesting. Yeah, and it's not the same as like Uncanny Valley when it's so close but not quite there, because that is a different feeling. This has like this like I can feel it almost like an anxiety thing reaction but it's not quite the same and you you've watched Gravity Falls right oh yeah I know I'm not alone in this because Mabel has the exact same issue so if someone in a you know popular Disney cartoon is talking about having this issue I know I am not alone in my weird rejection of it I still in these sorts of movies enjoy it but it adds to the creepiness of the movie because of its bizarre, unable to quite wrap my head around it on an instinctual level. Right, right. No, that's a that is a great point. I think I think it's also kind of enhanced by some of the the set design because mm-hmm. seeing seeing these weird things happen in these very surreal sets kind of always throws me for a loop, and I'm always constantly trying to see the seams like. Every time I hear, I watch uh, half the time. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll go through all the special effects and all the special features and everything. And then I'll rewatch the movie to see if it like makes any difference to how I view the movie. And it never does. Knowing how the cake made, for whatever reason, does not spoil it for me. I still enjoy it. And, I, and I'm never sitting there being like, ah, oh, so this was filmed in reverse. You can definitely tell. Half the time it's like, wait, you filmed this in reverse? Like I had no idea that like that sequence where they, they tear out, like where she's actually a reverse shot of her kind of being thrown up versus her actually being eaten. It's just like reversed because she like was started inside and then crawled out and then they just reversed the shot. But you can't really tell and it just adds to the dreamlike quality. That mm-hmm. And the sets are just so great at kind of making you feel a little off kilter and gross. Like, it's always gross. there's a grossest feeling. And it's so funny because it has been a few years since I've watched this movie. Uh, It's probably because I got the Blu-ray set of all the movies on a Black Friday deal years ago uh, and watched them all kind of like as quickly as I could and then haven't watched them again since. But it's so funny you mentioned about how the cake is made. I was literally at the beginning of this movie being like, that's not how you make a cake. And then, (laughs) oh, right, she's doing paper mache. (laughs) <laughs> that's so like, funny she's being so careless with her measurements that's not how you do that and then i was like oh oh it's paper mache my bad so, so funny you know that's i wanted to bring up the house because oh, so yeah. she she makes this uh, it looks amazing by the way i would love to kind of just have a recreation of this if somebody ever sold a prop version of this i would just love to have this in my home but the the iconic house is nancy's house uh from the first movie and it kind of the idea of the house kind of keeps coming back movie to movie to movie where it's like this weird occurring reoccurring motif Mm -hmm. and i was amazed because in that model like the model of the home is in the original script by wes craven but it's not of nancy's house it's of Freddy Krueger's original home, which they have to like go in and deal with and kind of like burn it to the ground and kind of 
desecrate it and make sure that he's put to rest. They have to go to where he was born and kind of like excise it in the Craven script, basically. Oh. Um, and it just the idea and that house, the the model, and just like the recurring image of the home keeps coming back in future sequels even and it's it's kind of funny that it came from the Wes Craven script but they changed what the house was and it still works I never questioned it in the final final film I was just kind of like oh this is that missing piece that explains how for whatever reason the Thompson house became this iconic Freddy Krueger Freddy Krueger thing because it in in the original Craven script it even has the moment with the lights turn on as the very final coda of the movie. Yeah, so, for sure. Very weird, very weird, very weird. Uh, I could never make that. My paper mache's always suck. I'm terrible at paper mache. Man, I haven't had paper mache since I was like in elementary school. So, of course, I, there was no way I recognized what it was. I would say my first thought was, oh, baking, because I do like to bake. That's true. That's true. Have you ever eaten coffee grounds? Does that work? Does that improve the coffee, like the potency I, of the coffee? It, well, it wasn't coffee grounds. I think she was eating instant coffee. Oh, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Does that also work? I mean, I Which guess. Which I have done in a pinch when I've worked night shifts before. And that was years ago. I used to work night shifts uh, back in my early 20s. And uh, I remember there would be like instant coffee in the break room. And like if the kettle was like just not there or something, I'd be like, well, I guess we're going down this road again. And so I've done it maybe like two or three times. And it does like it's still caffeine, like it still will wake you up. But like it's it's the same as a coffee. If it's like two in the morning, it's not going to help you for very long. Right, right. That is kind of kind of the the thing about coffee is it doesn't really help you stay up as as late as these movies like to 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 make it seem like you do no it's like this is where you need math (laughs) well yes and i've always found i've worked many night shifts and i've always found that when you get to a certain point you just have to drink enough water and then chew gum and that's kind of what makes you get through it there's Mm -hmm. always like weird techniques work for everybody but i do kind of love the recurring coffee motif <laughs> that goes through all of these films uh, where you get like uh, Nancy hiding the whole coffee pot under her bed in the first movie and here she's like eating the instant coffee and you know it's it's uh, it's always amusing how the kids kind of try to make themselves stay awake and, and horrifying in some cases right because like the one girl is like burning like the cigarettes on herself to make help her keep awake oh, and you know oof. Jennifer who's got probably the most iconic death in the whole film truly truly and like probably one of the most iconic horror deaths of all time really like it's a it's an all-timer and very creative very creative and i kind of wondered watching it because i was watching it this time with a more critical eye uh because like normally when i watch these movies i'm just sitting down and enjoying the ride and i i'm always been like a horror apologist of like no, no, no. People do stupid things. Of course, they'd run up the stairs. Sometimes you do stupid things, you know. But in this time, I was looking at a more critical eye, and I just like, how would anyone explain her death? Oh, like, it's the, the weirdest. Nurse comes in and is like, but how? 
and it explodes, right? Like if you ram your head through a TV, it normally doesn't explode. And we like, you see the residue, they do a terrible job cleaning it off because there's that scene right before they do the final group thing with uh, Nancy, when Nancy comes in and you literally see Kincaid like around the, where the TV used to be and it's all charred and exploded and burnt. And you're like, how would she like have gotten a chair and like jumped face first into that and then like there's no way she would have enough strength to break the tv in like logically because those tvs are pretty hard to break at the time and there's like so many things where it's one of those things where you know i think it kind of probably is trying to reinforce the just blatant denial of the truth that some parents have where they can't really face exactly the supernatural so they have to come up with a, a solution but even then it kind of does strain the the laws of credulity i get a bit yeah so like because a lot of the other ones are like you can explain like again like i go back to you can explain philip he threw himself out a window like everybody saw him throw himself out of the window obviously the teenagers all know he was being controlled by you know the the nightmare that they didn't quite know yet but like anyone outside of that the big nope he was suicidal threw himself off a roof um you know, like Tara and she OD'd. Uh, Will, I mean, he was stabbed, but like he could have done it to himself or depending on what like the body would have looked like after if, if there was no like mark and he just had a heart attack. Unfortunately, like, you know, a young kid been in a bad accident. Maybe it had hurt his heart more than they realized. Had a heart attack, right? Like they're all fairly explainable except for, for Jennifer. Yeah, yeah, that is that is weird. Uh, I, and I think that would kind of, uh, it was one of those things where it's a better kill than it is a better explainable kill. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think they definitely kind of like go hard in that on, on future, future movies because at one point, I think in the exact sequel to this, and I'm pretty sure it's Joey from this movie, he dies in a waterbed yeah. in Dream Master. And it's like, we supposed to believe a kid drowned in a waterbed? I don't think that would ever work. Like, there's no way that you could make that anything other than, holy shit, there's a demon and it's taking my kids. It's like, what's yeah, going on? It's like, maybe there's a recall on this model of waterbed that you know, <laughs> somehow children are getting sucked into it. And <laughs> contact the manufacturer that would be uh the worst sequel to nightmare on elm street where it's just them trying to get a recall on a faulty uh yeah where um like if you had control of the franchise at this point where would you have decided to take it and are you kind of happy with the more goofy route that it eventually led oh that is like the hardest question you could have ever asked because it's it's really hard to say because like that's that's the thing about horror movies and you'll see this in like every movie that's a franchise one you have to keep it fresh in a way you have to up the kills and generally up the kill count and the kills have to get more and more creative or if if you go to watch like number four and fewer people die and they're all kind of boring you're not gonna go see number five like you have to continue to up the game and so to do so you have to get more and like so you have three which is such a creative idea that they're all fighting freddy together getting sucked into to kristen's dreams but then with five or four um because 
Kristen, or Kristen, oh my god, Patricia Arquette didn't come back. So one, they have to recast the character. And then uh, it's so hard to say where I would have gone with it. Like, I feel like this is a leading question that you have uh, oh, no. some ideas. Nope. nope, I have no idea. Oh, it's one of those okay. things where I always I always like to ask ask my guests this because I'm always curious if if they if they kind of had had an idea because a lot of people uh, occasionally will just pull something amazing out and I'll be like, what? Where'd you come up with that? And they're like, oh, I've had it for years. So I'm, oh, I'm always I'm always really interested in asking that question. I, I don't know if I would really change anything up to five because I really like four. I think Dream Master has a lot to it and has a lot of good elements. Um, it definitely struggled a bit from budget um, because they know they had some budget things. So like there's a scene where a kid kung fu fights an invisible Freddy glove and I would have cut that. <laughs> so like, I would have yeah. changed that for the sequel. But as a whole, I think there's a, a, a lot to love about that movie and it's when it really goes to dream child that I would probably try to maybe make some tweaks and maybe take the characters in a different direction. But um, it, as far as a sequel to this, I think I think they did the only thing they really could do, right? Because you can't, it takes a while to figure out a new take on, on Freddy and you kind of got to go with the one that's the most recent and most popular. Um, the reason why they brought New Nightmare and made Freddy try to make Freddy scary again is because the movies were declining in popularity. But this is like apex popularity, so I don't really know what you can do to change it. Um, other than the fact that I would have really liked to keep Kincaid and Joey alive, because mm-hmm. they in Dream Master, that's one of the things I really don't like, and is an example of what I that this movie doesn't do is that it just brings both of those characters back to like pretty dramatically and quickly dispatch them. And that's always kind of a bummer to me because I think by that point they all had a really good relationship and not to mention they were the original cast, right? So I probably would have liked to keep them around a little longer as they really did come back for the movie just to get killed off, which kind of is a bummer. Yeah. And like, I understand like they probably want to do something different than uh they did in the in three and have them live longer but like even if they like spaced out the kills a little longer like um for example like randy's death in scream 2 it doesn't come at the end of the movie at the climax and it doesn't come at the beginning of the movie as like that that shock kill of a returning character but it's like in the middle of the movie and like throw one in just kind of in the middle where you're not expecting it because i feel like you expect it more at the beginning or the end, but to do it in the middle is less done and more of a shock. Yeah, no, that's a that is that is a wonderful, wonderful point. And to that, do you have any final thoughts about Dream Warriors? Uh, it's one of those movies where, again, I'm sure we could we could have made this into a five hour podcast because you oh, really sure. could kind of just detail every single thing about this movie because it's all pretty remarkable. I'm I didn't even get into my spiel about how I think uh, Pennywise the clown is just Freddy Krueger, uh, and it is basically a Nightmare on Elm Street story with a different name. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, couple things. Uh, Larry Fishburne. Uh, excuse me. Oh yes. Always great. Oh yes. He's not, so good. Not Lawrence Fishburne. Credited as Larry Fishburne, and he's fantastic. Um, some of the other effects that I just the effects in this movie are 
honestly, I would say so underrated. Like, I know there's the big one of, like, the Freddy snake and Jennifer getting her head through the TV and, like, Freddy coming up through the TV is, like, a classic. And the chest souls is a classic. But there's some other moments where you're just, like, the effects here are good. Like, with the the tricycle melting uh, in Kristen's early dream. And, like, there there is some really well-done crafted effects and even then the the script itself is clever like one of the things philip says when christian first arrives is welcome to the snake pit and then not long after that you get that classic freddy snake appear that tries to eat her so yeah yeah it's just all like you've got the the recurrence of the freddy with the tongues and yeah it's just yeah it's just a such a fun movie that like well watching it now not scary i still wonder if the first time i watched it if i like as an adult if i'd never seen it before if i would not be at least a little creeped out by the freddy character and just kind of have one of those like i don't know if i want to go to sleep tonight yeah no that that's fair i i always find that during the holiday the halloween season especially I feel like this is one of those perfect movies where it's got the creepy atmosphere, but it's also fun, and there are some more bittersweet moments, and it's really got got everything to be like a really comprehensive and really uh, exciting thrill ride. Yeah, and one one last thing, and this comes from a place of being, you know, a person in my mid thirties. So the boss doctor shows up after a couple kids have died, and they've prescribed all these kids this experimental medicine, and they're like. Uh, Nancy and I don't remember his name the other doctor you're both fired get out and like your immediate gut reaction is like that jerk screw the man he's not the boss of them and that's like but you look back as an adult and go no he's got a really good point like on the outside it's like these people are prescribing medication that is not tested they're having kids die on their watch everything's going wrong they're like holding secret groups without like authorization they should have been fired like oh yeah Oh, yeah. Like, as an adult going, oh, no, he was right. And that makes me feel old. <laughs> Where can they find you on the interwebs? Well, uh, I uh, talk on the Twitter often about uh, movies. Uh, my handle is Laura underscore Raptor because I do like dinosaurs. And uh, I have a new podcast coming out called Burnt Popcorn. I'm sure we're going to have a Twitter handle that's something along those lines soon. Uh, I feel like uh, you can look for that in the coming week or two. I cannot wait. That sounds amazing. Me too. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. If you enjoyed the podcast today, you can always follow us on Twitter at mpodcastm. Follow myself at winemovienerd. Uh, if you want to rate us five stars wherever you rate podcasts, that would be appreciated. Or be honest, rate whatever you like. You can email us at milkshakesandmosas at gmail.com. And if you find yourself so inclined and want to give us a few monies, you can always go to Patreon and look us up at Milkshakes and Mimosas. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Goodbye.